Good morning, Newcom. You can uh, make your way back to your seats. Hopefully you've gotten several holy kisses this morning. It is, uh, it's good to see you this morning. It's good to celebrate together. Uh, I couldn't help but think when I was down front, I was uh, sitting right up front with these little guys and, uh, and worshiping, and it, it just struck me as I was sitting there that you realize that today, around the world, millions of people are gathering to celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. I mean, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I started just imagining that, um, that all these brothers and sisters of ours worldwide are gathering in places like the Fox or in mud huts with thatched roofs in empty warehouses and storefronts, in living rooms and homes, in open fields. I mean, this summer in Africa, getting the chance to just worship under this makeshift tent and realizing that right now, millions of people are celebrating the same thing. We are celebrating, really, the greatest story ever told, the greatest thing that could have ever happened to any of us. And this morning, what I want to do is I just want to kind of walk us through that story again, remind ourselves of the, the great, great story that we've been hearing echo throughout history. A long time ago, there's a man in the scriptures named Abraham. And Abraham was a man that was described as having just this dynamic faith. He was the kind of guy that would hear from God often and then he would begin to live out the very things that God had called him to do. And Abraham had this wife named Sarah, and the two of them longed for years and years and years to have a child. And they were both old in age, and it appeared as if there was no way that was going to happen. And one day, the scriptures tell us that the angel of the Lord came with a couple of visitors, and he walked up to Abraham and to Sarah, and he said, I'm just here to announce the fact that you are going to have a son. And at first, they laughed him off. They said, I mean, this is a joke. We're really old. It's not going to happen. And he said, no, it is. And then slowly, they started to believe. They started to have faith in this. And the scriptures tell us that when Abraham was 100 years old, that he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac was his hopes and dreams. I mean, Abraham looked at Isaac and he saw his future in him. He saw this great love for his son. He had this compassion for him. He, he looked at him and saw the promise that God had made, which is that out of Isaac, a great nation would come forth. This nation would be the nation of Israel. And God said, I've chosen this nation. I've chosen your son, Isaac. This will be a great part of this story that I'm creating. But then as Isaac grew, he got to the age of about a teenager, and the scriptures tell us that God decided to test Abraham. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this test. Now, he didn't tell Abraham that, but he went to Abraham one day, and he said, here's the thing. I want you to be willing to give up your only son, your firstborn son, the son that you love, the son that you all your hopes and dreams are on. I want you to give up that son. And so the scriptures tell us that Abraham gathered Isaac and together they journeyed and 
They journeyed three days. It just so happened to be three days. They went up to the very hill that the temple would be built on in the future, and it just so happened to be that very hill. And as they made their way, the scriptures tell us that Isaac carried the very wood on his back that he would ultimately have to be sacrificed on. And he makes his way to the top of the hill with his father. They get up there. Abraham said, now it's time for the offering. Isaac's looking around and goes, Dad, there's no offering. I mean, what are we doing here? He realizes that he's the offering. And so he willingly allows himself to be tied up, willingly is placed on the altar. And the scriptures say that Abraham was about to do what God had asked, about to give up his only son, the son that he had all of his hopes and futures on. And the scriptures tell us that as Isaac was staring death in the face, at that last moment, God intervened. And he said, there's a lamb. What I want you to do is I want you to take that lamb and I want you to replace Isaac with this lamb and I want the lamb to be the sacrifice. Now if you fast forward in the story a little bit, you realize that in this narrative, Isaac has grown up, the nation has been formed, and that nation now finds itself in great slavery. In fact, they're slaves to the people of Egypt, and they find themselves living every day through the same routine of working hard. There's no hopes, there's no dreams, there's no future. They look around them, and there's no wholeness, there's no peace, there's nothing that they ever dreamed or hoped. There's nothing that it seems looks at all like what God promised. And you see them facing this reality of a life that feels like death every day. And they're longing for liberation. The scriptures say this, that I have seen the misery, God is speaking of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. Indeed, I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them from slavery and bring them into the land flowing with all good things. And so God sends Moses. He sends this man named Moses, and Moses comes in and he begins to declare that God is going to set his people free. And what begins to happen is God puts on this divine display of power through Moses, where he declares to everybody, there is no other God but me. Any other God that you think exists, any other God that you would worship, I am far superior to all other gods. And he ends this set of miracles with a final act of judgment. And he declares judgment on the nation and he says, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, I am going to strike down the firstborn son of everyone in this entire nation. Then he says, except giving you an opportunity to have a covering to protect your son. Here's all you have to do. You need to go find a lamb. You take that lamb and you sacrifice that lamb in place of your son. And when you do that, the angel of the Lord will pass over your home and your son will be spared. So right as they're staring death in the face again, a lamb comes in removes death and brings life. If you fast forward in this story that we know a little bit further, we recognize Moses is receiving the law. 
And the law is really a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. It's this understanding that here's the perfect way for you to live. And he sets it up for us. And what happens, just like it did in the garden with Adam, all of us fall short of living according to the law, according to the perfect way the kingdom was established. And so, again, a sacrificial system is set up. And once again, the lamb steps in to pay the price for my sin and for yours. We see this story continuing to echo again and again. You fast forward again to the end of the Old Testament. We find ourselves in this period of 400 years of silence. God hasn't spoken with his people in years. And around them, they're looking at the nation. They're looking around at their own lives. And they just see doubt and questions and fear. A form of death. Then all of a sudden, there's this crazy guy that shows up on the scene. This guy is dressed in camel's hair and animal's clothes. He eats grasshoppers and locusts. And he shows up on the scene and he starts declaring the truth that the kingdom is near. He says, I'm the son of God. The kingdom is near. You're going to see the one that was promised, the one that was awaited. And the one that you have awaited and longed for has arrived. You've seen shadows of him in Isaac. You've seen shadows of him in the Exodus. You've seen and heard that he is the fulfillment of the law. And I'm here to declare to you that he is near. That he is here. And so Jesus arrives on the scene. And all throughout the New Testament, we get these glimmers understanding this revelation of the Son. We see Jesus as the Son. And Jesus is described throughout Scripture as the firstborn. He's described as a firstborn. Now, I have four children. Jack, why don't you come up? I have four children. I have two daughters, Carson and Evie, and then I have two sons. One of them was one of the Masons. The other one was my son, Jack. Jack's nervous right now. You're not? Dad, I'm not nervous. What are you talking about? So, Jack, tell me what grade you're in. Speak right into my chest. Fourth. Perfect. Okay. Now, uh, where do you go to school? Willard. Willard. Willard Elementary. Um, now, Jack is, uh, I love Jack with all of my heart. He's the first son that I had, and, and uh, we share a lot of things in common. We love some of the same things. What are some things that we share in common? You got anything? What? Soccer. Soccer, right. Yeah, some of you have heard me talk about that probably. Who's our favorite team? Arsenal. Go Arsenal. That's right. But um, this is my son, Jack, and I have, and he knows this, I have an incredible love for my son. He is a, a gift from God our family, just as all of our children are, but he's my firstborn. And all throughout the New Testament, what you see is this picture of God who begins to describe his son, and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I care about. We have this deep relationship. We spend time together. We love one another. And he describes all throughout the New Testament this love 
for his son. And it says that his son, Jesus, lives a perfect, spotless life. And just when all of us are in need of redemption again, just when all of us are in the the throes of death, where we're captive to a life that enslaves us, God comes in and says, now I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to provide a means of escape. And so he begins to have this, this calling where he says, I'm going to liberate all people. And just when we get to the part of the story where we go, okay, we see how this works. Isaac makes his way, and then at the very last minute, a lamb steps in, and everything's good. And just when we're at the Passover and there's a need for a lamb, the lamb steps in, and again, we're good. And just when we get to this place where we realize that the law, we're not living it the way we've called, and from the very beginning, from Adam on, we've not lived according to the law, God steps in and says, there's a lamb. And we get to the New Testament, we get to this place where we go, okay, God, here's the twist in the story, right? You're going to provide the lamb at the last possible minute. And what Jesus, or what God says instead is, no, he is the lamb. The firstborn is the lamb. Scripture talks about him offering his very son for us. It says this, this is how God showed his love for us. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. He goes on later to say, we can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in a sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. The scriptures speak of Jesus laying down his life and sacrificing his life for us, but the scriptures also speak of this divine love where a father has for his son, and he says, I'm going to give him up for you. The sacrifice that happened for all of us. Now here's the deal. If I had to make that choice this morning or any time this week, if I had to exchange him for you, I like you. You know, many of you I know and love, but here's the truth. It's not going to happen. It's not. I mean, for as much as I I love you, is that good? Is that good? Yeah. For as much as I love you, as much as I know you, the truth of the matter is there's no way you would ever get me to allow him to be broken, to allow his blood to be shed for you, to allow him to give up his life in exchange for your life. The cost would be too great for me. The cost would be more than I'd be willing to handle. And the scriptures say that the cost for him was so great, and yet he said, I'm going to choose to give up my very son, my firstborn son, my spotless, perfect, never done anything wrong to him. 
see, the story doesn't end there. The story keeps going. It continues. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. It says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped. I love that little section where Jesus, been dead for three days, comes out of the tomb, is standing there. They walk up to him and he goes, hi. I mean, (laughs) greetings. Like you would think he'd say a little something more right in that moment. But just, hi, it's me. I'm here. I'm risen. And it's the angel, what the angel said is so profound. He says, he is not here. He is risen. Jesus, the one who stood in our place, the perfect firstborn son, the lamb who sacrificed his life, whose body was broken and his blood shed for us, is risen. I mean, that reality changes everything for us. That hope, that belief, that truth changes the way we live. We are no longer enslaved to the very things that we seem feel enslaved to. We're no longer entangled by this death, but we're made alive in Christ. See, Easter is intended to liberate us from the very tombs of our life. Barbara Anderson said this, we are captive to patterns of behavior established long ago ago that hold us still in their grip. We are captive to grief so deep it feels like an ocean. Fear so great it paralyzes. We are slaves to addictions we do not even recognize, from alcohol to drugs or food or shopping, from busyness to relationships or conflict or chaos. We are held prisoner by a lack of hope that the clouds will ever part to show us a blue sky, that injustice will ever be overturned, that the lonely corners of our heart will ever be touched by love, a lack of hope that guns can be turned into plowshares and peace will ever come. Captive to the belief that bigotry will win and truth is not worth fighting for. We live, each of us, to lesser or greater degrees at various times in our lives in bondage to the belief that we're ultimately powerless in the face of evil and death. And the resurrection changes all of that. Resurrection means that Jesus has the final word. Resurrection means victory. I mean, we're no longer bound to death. We have victory over sin and death. All the dark forces of evil that seek to enslave, that seek to keep us bound 
to sin and death are abolished in him. Scripture says it this way, that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. And if we believe in him, he has brought us to the kingdom of his son he loved, the kingdom of light. He says later that we were dead to our sins, but together made alive in Christ. The song that we sang a little bit earlier, earlier echoes one of the passages that says that there's nothing that can stand between us and the love of God. That neither height nor depth, nor angels nor rulers, nor principalities, things present, things to come, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ that is found in God. See, resurrection is not just a historical fact from the past. It is something that we believe in the present. It is not just something we hope for in the future. It's something that impacts every single moment of every single day. The truth is this, that today, for some of us, what we need to do more than anything else is just celebrate this truth. The, fact, the truth is this, that no matter how much we celebrate today, it will pale in comparison to how much we could and should celebrate today. Because today changes everything. Today changes everything. Not only that, I would encourage some of us to dive into conversation with people today. Wrestle with someone in a relationship where you begin to say, how is the resurrection, how are the present realities changing in your life in light of what's happened? Because the resurrection makes everything new. Let me finish with this quote. Resurrection says that what we do with our lives matters. Every act of compassion matters. Every work of art that celebrates the good and the true matters. Every fair and honest act of business and trade, every kind word. They all belong and they will all go on in God's good world. Nothing will be forgotten. Nothing will be wasted. It all has its place. See, Jesus invites us to trust resurrection. That every glimmer of good, every hint of hope, Every impulse that elevates the soul is a sign, a taste, a glimpse of how things actually are, of how things will ultimately be. Resurrection affirms this life and the next. Let's pray. Father, it is the spotless land that you offered for us that we remembered this last week, and today we recall that story And we recognize and realize that that wasn't the end of the story, but that today what we celebrate is the beginning of a brand new story. We've been offered this freedom. We've been offered this escape from death. We've been offered this life, this relationship with you. And God, I pray that this morning that as we meditate on that, as we celebrate it and reflect on it, God, I ask that it would motivate us to live the kind of lives that you are inviting us into. May it affirm the very things that we believe. May the songs that we sing in these next few moments, the conversations that we enter into today, that may all of these things continue to attest the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. That all things have been made new through him. That we have life.
God, if there's anyone in here that would doubt that that's true, that feels as if they're continuing to be enslaved to the life that they live, held captive, God, would you invite them into a conversation with someone today that would perhaps open their eyes to a new reality? God, may we all live in a new reality of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in his great prayer.